Hello and welcome to Shelf Check, a podcast about books, pop culture, and just a pinch of salt. Shelf Check comes from Arlington Public Library in Arlington, Texas. I'm Miranda. I'm Mark. And I'm Tamara. So let's talk. All right, so we're delving today into one of my favorite sort of micro-histories or, mm. or very niche parts of U.S. history, which is U.S. food culture. I have is, a feeling that you and I have come up with some the same information, but from a lot of different sources. Probably. I think yeah. this is something that we both like to study and, and watch programs about yeah. in our spare yeah. time. And it's kind of funny how something that everybody does every day, multiple times a day, can be niche. Yeah, that's but true. It, yeah. Well, that's a good point. In terms of the consumption, but it is uh, the, what, the examined life. Yeah. Uh, so figuring out well, why do we do this? Why did we eat different things at or morning? the history of a certain type of yeah. product, like the history, right. like the history of um, the history of like breakfast cereals is like surprisingly mm-hmm. fraught and dramatic. Yeah. Uh, speaking of drama, I just saw an article today that said that Kellogg's is about to split into three different companies. Oh, is that crazy cereal. or what? Yeah. I didn't realize they were quite, I guess they're one of those big parent companies. I didn't, yeah, you know, I think Post kind of started that. And then I guess so. Everybody kind of just kind of, like, created their own, like, huge parent it's companies for things. Yeah. Yeah, huh. it, it's, um, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but <laughs> uh, you, if you follow all of the things in the grocery store up to their holding company, mm-hmm. there's about five companies in the world that you're probably are right. Kind of not a conspiracy. And, 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 and I think you're probably yeah. right, and Kellogg is probably one of them. Yeah. Yes. Well, not for much longer. Yeah. Um, well, no, they're gonna. Now there's gonna be. Now there'll be more. There'll be seven. There'll, there'll be seven companies, but all three of them are still. <laughs> three of them are still Kellogg. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. they are going to split from uh, one giant corporation to. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, their their cereals, yeah. their snacking, and then plant uh, plant based businesses. Yeah, so I didn't even know they had plant based businesses. That's interesting because I mean, like, I guess in my head now I'm not a child anymore. I admittedly still love cereal, but like as a snack. <laughs> so I'm like, it's snacking, right? Right. Yeah. Cereal makes a lovely dessert, in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. No, I wonder how much of that comes from sort of nostalgia of um, eating mm-hmm. cereal. You know, yeah. not as a grown-up, and then now eating it as a grown-up. That's true enough. Um, just something about you know, blueberry or you know, yeah. it brings me back to some times. <laughs> but that, that having been said, I've, I've heard someone say with all sincerity that uh, if they're ever in a position to pick their final meal, that mm-hmm. it's going to be cinnamon toast crunch milk. Mm-hmm. The oh. milk is oh, left over after eating cinnamon toast crunch. Okay, okay. I, I, I hope they know, yeah. don't have that as their food. <laughs> yeah, the person I was talking about this with, no, really the, the, the best option is a McDonald's um, uh, ice cream. <laughs> because you may get an extra six months as they're trying to source one. That, oh, God, because the machine isn't broken. they get to find a place this machine isn't broken. Yeah. <laughs> have, you ever had, have you ever had those, like... Uh, Milkshake concoctions at, at at these restaurants like the the tricks uh, milkshake or you know or you oh know, yeah no I've I've heard and, that and then I try it and it tastes just like a bowl of cereal I'm yeah, just like you don't love it Whoa. well see I would love that I actually went to a cereal bar yeah so that's with uh, that's with the the, the ironic. Um, 
<laughs> movement there. I'm doing, I'm doing the, uh, the the air quotes. The air quotes. Um, but basically, it was a place that that you could um, had like a ton of different types of cereal, and you could like buy like a uh, you could buy a bowl, especially cereal or a mixture of cereals, or you could mix it with ice cream, or you have a milkshake. Mm -hmm. So my sister actually got like three or five different types of Lucky Charms random mm -hmm. ones, and got got a bowl of cereal which she couldn't finish, and I got a um, I got a, like a chocolate ice cream with. Fruity Pebbles or something, oh, which, yeah, yeah. which I did in fact finish. <laughs> well, I'll just say that I, it's not that I don't like cereal. I do like cereal, mm -hmm. and I probably would have enjoyed being at a cereal bar, but mm -hmm. um, I'm not a big fan of milk yeah, myself, and so I, I kind of stepped that. away from cereal in my life. But uh, we were talking a few minutes ago about mm -hmm. whether uh, mm -hmm. why they still market to children and how they miss the adults. And, yeah. And I think, though, that it's actually genius because you got the children, right? Yeah. And then you are marketing towards nostalgia for the kid, uh, the adults that were kids that, li mm -hmm. uh, that ate that cereal. And they're That's like, true. oh, man, I re remember eating that box of cereal when I was a kid at my grandma's table. Or whatever, and yeah. I have to do this again. And... Yeah. It's definitely something that you can enjoy, but like Cocoa Monster says, it's a sometimes food. It's like it yes. should it should be a dessert. It should not be a breakfast. <laughs> Personally, that's, that's how why I, feel. I think about donuts. Oh, that's actually a smart thing to do. Yeah, too. I, I much prefer my breakfast be savory than. than but what sweet. I what I think is really funny about like here we are talking about our conceptions of of cereal, and we all grew up, and I know we're all different ages, but we all definitely grew up when cereal was just like a standard kind of breakfast you have as a yes. kid. Yeah. And that's not necessarily in the history of um, U.S. You know, U.S. development. You know, no. the cereals really mm -hmm. came from America to start with. But like, we're talking a couple centuries of this yes. only. You know, yeah. previous to that, there was no really set breakfast menu, and mm -hmm. it was it was Kellogg's. In fact, that was actually sort of like the innovator, yeah. the the we... that brought out the first sort of commercially available cereals. But they weren't the ones that capitalized on it first, because you know, of course, with mm -hmm. the whole health-oriented aspect. Yeah, it was a health food thing to start that with. That the uh, one brother just refused to let it be commercialized. And, right. And so somebody else jumped in on that one. Well, it's interesting, yeah, because you have the two, it was Kellogg, the Kellogg brothers, one of mm -hmm. them sort of like a health nutritionist, and, uh, a unique personality, eccentric mm -hmm. in some of his beliefs <laughs> and his practices, but he came up with the original sort of cornflakes, obviously, uh, no, um, no sugar, mm -hmm. and it originally. Mm -hmm. And you're right; they were sort of beaten to market commercially by like uh, other brands. Post, post, yes. And yeah. um, I think what was it? Uh, uh, grape nuts. I think actually technically predates. Yes. yes. So they were, you know, not that. So Kellogg's would have been. So cornflakes would have developed earlier, but but. So Kellogg's grape nuts hit the market created, Kellogg's created the concept, mm -hmm. and then grape, mar uh, grape nuts was the original sort of yeah. marketed right. Although item. Then eventually, eventually, through the second brother of the two mm -hmm. Kellogg's brothers, ended up um, cornflakes ended up coming onto the market with some sugar in it attached, mm -hmm. and then eventually we had like say frosted flakes, which I'm sure the first, mm -hmm. at first John Kellogg, the original one, basically. Um, if he was around to actually see that happen, <laughs> he probably would have killed him. If he were alive him. today, he'd be yeah. rolling in his grave. <laughs> exactly. 
But that's an interesting one because it totally set like a thing that we're used to. Not only did it set up cereal as like a food that now exists and mm-hmm. it's a breakfast mm-hmm. food, mm-hmm. but it set up some of the concept of that sort of set American standard breakfast menu, yeah. which we and didn't how, really how have. How much do you think that related to the parental convenience of setting your kids loose to feed themselves in the morning? Yeah. I mean, that's true. I definitely have memories of waking up, and I, I cannot believe how early I would I would rise as a child. You know, I'm just like, I don't know where the inclination <laughs> came from. Well, but getting up before my mother and knowing that I could always just go and uh, being entrusted with being mm-hmm. able to go get a bowl of cereal mm-hmm. and, and and pour milk in it, have my cereal, and watch some cartoons before my yeah. mother woke up. Well, there there is a lot of history, Mark, that is um, uh, built around that. Uh, a lot of these, like... Uh, food innovations that we've had mm-hmm. that is based around how uh, convenience and how people were not able to really just devote their time to cooking right. uh, either in the morning or at any other time of the day because they were constantly like the industrial revolution really kind of right. spearheaded that movement it moved of populace. people out of their houses yeah, where they were people, doing exactly. work. Yeah, move populations away from where would have been like sort of privately held small farms or mm-hmm. holdings uh, into areas where, again, they didn't have the time or the resources or the the access mm-hmm. to ingredients to be doing that all themselves. So, like, in fact, things like um, like the the war. So, so like World War One or World War Two really boosted oh, yeah. restaurant industry. Yes, yes, because people because of of, of uh, rationing, people were not um, you know. Uh, I think in Britain, actually, it skyrocketed the, the ratio of people going to eat in, in restaurants at the time because they didn't have the rationing within the home. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were certain areas that were basically restaurants but also subsidized through the British government um, so that they would be, actually have much more access to, like, ready available hot foods through, and, and the pricing was, like, pitched there to help people in the war be able to afford that through their rationing. So like people started to go out because it was actually cheaper and easier mm-hmm. for the, one of the first times than eating at home. Now, I, I, if you think, um, if I think about this correctly, um, and I will admit that I do mm-hmm. love to watch these little docu series. I know about, I love a good entertainment about, on food. Uh, yeah, about food things I get a lot of my information from a, a, a series on Discovery Plus called The Food That Built America. I think oh. it started on the History Channel. But so this is one I've not actually watched, so I need to put yeah, it on my list. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it is it is quite entertaining. Um, but if I remember correctly, there was uh, Cheetos was born out of World War II. Okay. Uh, that one of the uh, chips manufacturers was able to make themselves uh, indispensable by providing for the troops. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the war, they had this leftover cheese product. Powder. Powder or something like that. as easily. Exactly. And so they uh, called the chip manufacturer that they had been working with them and was like, hey, do you want to try to do something with this? And so the Cheeto was born. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of uh, incredible things, incredible things, and when I say incredible, like new 
science that happened mm -hmm. because of like leftovers from the war right. or just like advancements that happened. Well, so that canned food in the first place yes. was uh, uh, Napoleon yes. was trying to figure out how to feed an army that is spread out across Europe. Right. And uh, you can't always rely on locals providing food when mm -hmm. they don't like you. Or you um, decide to go into Russia in yeah, winter. Yeah, in winter, right? It's only, <laughs> it's only so much that you can pull out of the ice to eat. <laughs> right. Um, and so he, he uh, commissioned a, a prize, uh, and the result of that was someone figuring out how to can food. And, and the same sort of thing, food additives, frozen dinners, all mm -hmm. of these things really are born spam, out of... Spam, spam, spam. Spam, exactly. Spam, spam, spam. Spam, spam. <laughs> Lovely spam, <laughs> wonderful spam. Oh wait, I'm sorry. Is that only ten seconds? I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, and, and we we make fun of spam, but if you are in a situation where you're mm -hmm. not going to have much protein otherwise, spam literally fed armies. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and if it's prepared in a certain way, it, mm -hmm. it, it's I mean, something you would want to eat. Yeah. I mean, I don't agree, but I yeah. understand. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, so there's, a, there's some really incredible stuff. And I actually do want to recommend at this point uh, a book that I thought was really a good way to sort of chart how we sort of not only um, move that sort of movement after World War II into the 50s of this boon of like being into all these advances of food science, but also how it sort of moved us away from that seasonal calendar. Uh, and mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've spoken on this of... Um, of when fruits and vegetables should be in season. Oh, yes. And yeah. then that sort of expanding and expanding and suddenly fruits and vegetables that were more regional being more available, um, more available just nationally and out of season. So there's a, a, a fun book called United States of Arugula <laughs> by David Camp, which is a fun one that sort of goes both into some of these big fruits. So it's got, got some sort of like mini histories of people like Julia Child in there uh, or James Beard, mm -hmm. but it also sort of goes into like these advances of, um, of science that sort of changed the way we shop, basically. The, the introduction of supermarkets, mm -hmm. for instance, mm -hmm. okay. things like that. Yeah. So it's a, very, it's a very interesting one that I do recommend. And actually, speaking of Julia Child, I do also want to just uh, pitch one of my favorites, which is My Life in France by Julia Child and Alex uh, Prudhomme, hmm. which is um, sort of biography slash autobiography. She's such an interesting person. Yes, and this, 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 this is actually just directly post-World War II, mm -hmm. um, being stationed with her husband, because uh, they were both part of the Office of Strategic Services, and then being stationed sort of in a post-war posting um, uh, in France, and sort of her introduction into foods and food culture that she had not had earlier in her life in America, and how that sort of led her into teaming up with French cooks, creating her, her creating um, uh, creating uh, mastering the art of French cooking, her first her first cookbook, and eventually getting into becoming a TV chef on PBS. So like all the antecedents of it, this is all her time before she moved back to America, and mm -hmm. all of those other things started happening. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting sort of biography slash autobiography of Julia Child's life, um, which I also recommend as well. So that was a great one. Um, but yeah, I do think it's really interesting. There's a lot of conversation to be had about like why we eat the foods we eat, um, or even marketing. Mar yes, and I read. A, I remember reading an article forever ago, which I don't remember the source on. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it was sort of like how some fruits and vegetables will be in vogue. They'll be sort of like 
in season, not in the sense of actual in season, but like that's the thing we're talking about. Like there was a time when I was younger, I remember grapefruit was like one of those ones that was like sort of the cool fruit I for a while. I loved it when I was a kid. And then we moved more into things like um, Avocado toast. Avocado or acai yeah. berries. There's clearly things that people have just made up. Brussels. That just, they weren't, they just didn't exist before. Oh. Or, or you know, actually. Just it wasn't on my radar. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, so I thought yeah. it was just like uh, artichokes for me when I was uh, <laughs> discovered it in California, right? And yeah. actually, speaking of that viewpoint, because I totally <laughs> understand it, is another book called The Fruit Hunters by Adam Goldner, which is a fascinating book about this exact topic of sort of like the multitude of fruits and vegetables and the varietals and the not only because when we think about like how many varieties of corn, how many varieties of apple, forget that fruits and vegetables mm -hmm. we've never heard of. We don't have a counterpoint for, right. for. Right. you know, we might know their citrus and that's about it. Like it doesn't matter. Like is it? And, oh, and, is, and of all the varieties of corn, mm -hmm. we think of mm -hmm. one as being corn. Right, and the reason and the rest are being some. Or like heirloom corn. corn or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the reason for it is because obviously they've made um, sort of uh, what's the compromises on the hardiness, how long it can last, you right. know, does it freeze well, does, is there enough taste when it's canned, right. all of those things. So there's right. so the, many the things. tomatoes that can make a truck journey from, you know, Another seven country. states away or, or other states, yeah, yeah. other countries. That's right. Because I think about that sometimes. I would get this thing. I wonder if there's like a word for this. That experience of like having an inanimate object, whether it be, I don't know, uh, a book or uh, a piece of fruit or a dresser or something. And then it tells you like made in wherever or sourced mm -hmm. from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And the sudden realization that that inanimate object has traveled more than you have in your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. happens to me sometimes. <laughs> where I'm like, wow. I've never been to China. Yeah, yeah, that kind of but, thing. But this house. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. Not only is it, yeah, it was there, and it's it's yes. here now. Yes. It's gone further than I than I have as of yet. But I do I do really like that fruit hunter because it has an international perspective as well of a lots of fruits and vegetables that we are and specifically fruits obviously because called the fruit hunters um, that we just don't have here. Right. Um, for those exact reasons, so they, they they won't grow in this region. They don't travel well. Basically, what we eat is what travels well. Yeah, there's. I'm not sure if I can do this justice, but mm -hmm. in um, um, I think it was Species, um, the, the the author Yuval um, Yuval Harari talks about we we think of uh, the domestication of food as being humans conquering the plants, mm -hmm. but really, if you think about, it, there are certain species of wheat that got humans to do their bidding <laughs> and, and it was actually the, the some specific foods that that domesticated humans rather mm -hmm. than the other way around well you can and you can see it really I, I understand it because you can see it clearly in um, say uh, fruits or flowers and bees and things like that they've literally developed in order to attract pollinators mm -hmm. so they are directing the behavior of another species in order to propagate their species. That's a good point. Which is really interesting. And that's an interesting perspective. I never really thought of it that way, Mark. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it but if you head, think about yeah. when yeah. you when farmers t uh, come to certain environments, that there are only certain things that thrive in those environments. Right. And when so they talk about a cash crop, like that, this is the one right. that's going to grow here. It's going to sell. Or, or right. just a survival crop. Yeah. Of absolutely. Any kind, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you you 
end up your diet adjusts to whatever is mm-hmm. is something that you can have in your environment. Like I, companion, I interesting. Like companion plants. What is it? Like the three? They call it the three sisters. It was corn. It was what was oh, it from oh, Native oh, Americans? Is corn maybe oats. oh I was uh, never no. mind I was thinking in terms of medieval crop oh no no rotation. it was like it was like a thing that as, like as one does. maize in there somewhere? yeah yeah the corn I think beans uh-huh. and I want to say tomato but that doesn't make sense to me <laughs> so because that doesn't it's not the right climate but there were like three of them now I'm gonna have to look it up because uh because there was like a thing where we sort of learned our um um our companion gardening sort of in some ways okay. from the Native Americans yeah. of like these three work together one helps revitalize the soil one keeps maybe like the, the, the pests off or something oh, like that right. mm-hmm. um, yeah so that was just uh, an interesting I don't know well, as you take food history back in time yeah. you realize how much stuff didn't used to grow everywhere like uh, I believe the tomatoes were um, a North American phenomenon yes. and so the, the earliest pizzas, no matter mm-hmm. who in Italy invented them, mm-hmm. uh, were not tomato sauce. That's very true. They used to have tomatoes. All right, and two things: it's corn, or something like that. It's corns, <laughs> beans, and squash okay. are the three mm-hmm. sisters. And yes, oh, succotash. Yes, succotash, uh, exactly. Yeah, okay. And and actually, you 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 listed one half of one of my favorite pairs of facts. One is that the that the tomato is na- is native to America, but the horse is not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So think about right. that. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I, I find it interesting. I came across something that that was like you know you've heard the question what came first the chicken or the egg, you know obviously tomatoes at some point were thought mm-hmm. to be poisonous. Right. In Europe. Ate it. Yeah. And. Um, and I, I still think they are. <laughs> Wait. Now, I, I love everything that is tomato based. Interesting. But just raw tomatoes, there's some this, history the there. Juice, the juice. Yeah. It, it took yeah, me a we, minute. We do an, yeah. an episode on post traumatic stress. <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, I, I, I want to laugh at that, but tomato juice specifically, the, the drinking product, mm-hmm. uh, no. Okay. All right, getting away from Sorry, tomatoes there for a moment, though. Um, who was the first person who ate mm-hmm. eggs? Who's the oh, that's first true. person? Who, or knew to cook know, them. Like, what? what is the, you know, well, how did we develop certain things that are, like, given that... Yeah, what, one of my favorite, things that are, seem normal now yeah. um, mm-hmm. didn't used to be. And one of my favorite food quotes, uh, mm-hmm. Jonathan Swift said, uh, he was a bold man who first ate an oyster. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what? I'm good. Bold or desperate. This is so interesting. I like oysters. So this yeah. is so interesting because I can see where it's not the most. Yeah. Because one of one of my favorite sort of, I went through. I still love this, but I went through a really heavy period where I would do food writings, like food culture writings. Okay. So I love. I mean, recipe books can be fun too, but histories of foods or chefs' memoirs and things. So like I that. always wanted to be review TV shows, and uh-huh. uh, you always wanted to write food histories. Yes, basically. Okay. Uh, but there's a wonderful one. Um, uh, by K- Kitchen Confidential by Anthony okay. Bourdain. Mm-hmm. Probably the only one that I've read. That yeah, I've read a few of his, uh, a few of his, and I read that one. That was that was the first time I had really read sort of like this sort of sub sub genre of. Uh, again, weird that it's niche because it's just food. Right. But it's a, sort of a memoir from a chef, and one of the most sort of trans his first like food memory, like like the transcendent memory, like the one that changed mm-hmm. him and really put him on a path mm-hmm. to do this was was an oyster. Okay. Um, like a submarine and I don't know I think they were in France actually at the time 
and just being emboldened to try it and yeah. tasting the seawater with the experience of it and just suddenly tasting the something completely and, the texture yeah. and like something something different from what you ever experienced before mm -hmm. really he had accredited to the moment of transcendence yes basically mm -hmm. was by the oyster, by the oyster. <laughs> it's a very it's a very moving passage in the in the book i remember specifically it's so interesting you said about the oyster yeah. as well so it sort of like connects back because he's describing something that probably the first person that brave person who drove the first one experienced as well yeah um but yeah so it is it is interesting when you talk about like things having acquired taste i'm like who decided that they needed to try it enough right <laughs> yeah it's, it's not it's sometimes it's not the first try but right. the fact that people kept trying yeah i think i'm, I'm gonna guess desperation for a lot of stuff yeah, yeah. for for not wanting to starve um, right but yes. if, if beer consumption was mm -hmm. limited mm -hmm. to people's first impressions of beer, oh. uh, we would have died out a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So no, no, keep or trying. coffee. The, the third time, the yeah. fourth time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I actually have a book I want to talk about, and mm -hmm. honestly, I have a book to, to mention. You know, Yay. it's very unusual <laughs> for me. Um, but a few years ago in, in book club, we read a book called Kitchens of the Great Midwest by mm -hmm. J. Ryan Straddle. And you were talking we were talking about why you would do certain eat certain things and stuff like that mm -hmm. and in this book goes into why you i mean a chapter about peppers that oh, i remember spiciness. spicy oh. peppers okay. and how that is like a contest and a competition and I'm just sitting here going, why would anybody want to put themselves oh, through something oh, like I that? I just yes. don't, yeah. Actually, there, there's a, a book that ties into that a little bit that just came out a couple of, uh, about a year ago. And I can't remember the title, um, but mm -hmm. it has to do with um, positive uses of pain. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And there, the, the consumption of hot foods, there's the, the endorphins that fire and the stress, but then the repose after the stress. Was it The Gift and of Pain? Yes, exactly. The Gift of Pain by Philip Yancey. There you go. Oh, no, actually, it's, it's oh, different. Oh, different that. one. Yeah. That, oh, um, something else then. Yeah. Strike um, that, reverse. But also, uh, <laughs> uh, very, people who climb mm -hmm. Mount Everest. Well, that's mm -hmm. really hard. That mm -hmm. causes pain, but yet there's value in the pain, the recovery from the pain and so forth. I mean, and, pain, and, pain happens for a reason. Food, <laughs> yeah, when it ties into food. I, um, I guess I can understand that for physical activity, but foods like peppers, I don't know. But anyways, I want to tell a little bit about this book. It's a really fun book, uh, or an interesting book, I should say. It's about this uh, this chef who has a baby and wants to raise the child up in, in food, and then he dies suddenly. And... Um, she's, uh, each chapter has a different recipe and uh, di a dish uh, and, and different characters. And so you see her popping up throughout the story, but it tells it from different perspectives throughout the story. And then you finally uh, see her at the end. And it's just, it was a wonderful book. And, I, and it was a debut uh, novel. And I just really appreciated it. Uh, it's one of the few that I actually thought was worth finishing. Okay. I don't always feel like my book club books are worth <laughs> finishing. So. Yeah. Well, that's 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 the that's the uh, the agony and the and the joy of a book club is yeah. that you have to. So you often you, out of your norms, you often but. read things you wouldn't pick on your own time, mm -hmm. and sometimes mm -hmm. it's a lovely surprise that you never would have gotten. Mm 
Exactly. And then sometimes exactly. you're reading books you never would have picked on your own time. There you go. <laughs> so that's always kind of a thing um, with it. But yeah, so that sounds like a good one. I'm going to put it on my list of books. I have a couple more yeah. on here. And, and to, it turns out it's called uh, Hurt So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. Uh, by Lake um, Coward. Yeah, by Lake Coward. And that so like ballerinas experience oh, pain yes. on purpose. Yes. But mm -hmm. for what they Marathon perceive as a greater good. Exactly. Yeah, that's and, really interesting. And uh, uh, spicy pepper eaters. And spicy pepper eaters. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I can't quite relate, but it will boy. Oh, or, or hot dog contest winner. Yeah. yeah. Like well, that's it. like a specific thing. That's, that's like a thing yeah. people train for. Right. Um, yeah. I don't really, I don't know. I don't know enough about it because it always kind of squeaks me out. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I will say, yeah. So there's a there are a ton of them out there. I um like you said, watching the documentaries. One thing I grew up watching was Good Eats, which is oh like, yeah. Yes. You know, yes. with Alton Brown mm -hmm. was the mm -hmm. show creator, and, and, and I loved that one. It was a really great introduction, sort of both into recipes, but also like how, you know, methodology of, of cooking, mm -hmm. and also the science of cooking, and the right. science of taste. And so it was really interesting. There are several, like, like um, the way I the way I cook a uh, cook a baked potato is based off of still based off of how Alton Brown taught me how to bake a baked potato. Right, mm -hmm. and they're good every time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, food food <laughs> preparation as art uh -huh. and science. Yes, yes. So there, and then and then I I will say I do love to get I want I want to do a shout out for one other one which is talking about you want to do TV reviews and food essays. I'll tell you one of my sort of heroes is Calvin Trilling. Who did food reviews and our few our food? So he has uh, one that I picked up from a half price book years ago. It's called the mm -hmm. Tummy Trilogy. Mm -hmm. It's actually a reprinting of three of his other titles: um, American Fried, Alice Let's Eat, and Third Helpings. And it's all uh, specifically American based and sort of like a a celebration exploration of regional cuisine specifically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so and and not a rejection necessarily, but sort of like um, moves away from the the more Michelin star kind of places, mm -hmm. much more like the type of food like we said that you're only going to get in the season in which that fish is, you know, available or that crustacean or mm -hmm. that that produce is fresh and new and that's a specialty of like that one area that you're in. So he kind of crisscrosses through America in many ways and like lets you know about the different seasons of things yeah. out there. So I do actually really recommend that one as well. Um, I, I, I think I've read somewhere they're bringing back or they've brought back Good Eats, which sounds really cool. Um, but Is it this, with the same host? Yeah, I think it's still with Alton Brown, which seems yeah. awesome. I mean, he was definitely he's, like... The, there's some production values yeah. kind of stuff in the earlier season because yeah. it's in the 90s. They go, ooh, that looks kind of dated. So I think yeah. they're, they're just trying to lower the threshold of right. consumption. For but I do, I do love it, though, because he was so... Um, he, he, just, he had a master, master plan what he wanted to do and the concepts of like, I, I remember one of my, my, one of my absolute favorite episodes was sort of telling, talking about the differences between polenta and grits, of which Alton Brown basically says there's not really. Um, and, but he, he uh, exemplifies this by having like himself, like as a character, mm -hmm. visit with people who are doing like southern grits and talking about polenta and visiting with basically a rip up of Italian mobsters talking about grits and how they just like don't want to see it they're saying right. <laughs> which I thought was hilarious but okay yeah. I have a quick question mm -hmm. do you like plantains or bananas I don't care for plantains what about you Mark I like um, bananas all right yeah I'm, it feels kind of lame but the banana is like almost the perfect food 
Yeah, um, I agree. Um, now a plantain dried and salted is nice. I like when it leans into the into the, the savory side. Right. But, but I can't stand banana are, chips. Are very endangered because of this sort of production oh, kind incredible. of thing. Yes. Um, My sister was telling me. Every banana that you've ever eaten is a direct clone of a banana uh, from 1932 or something. Right. Uh, it's a certain variety that um, uh -huh. is uh, endangered because of the genetic, the lack of genetic diversity. And not just that, but the reason that we use that banana is because America used to use a different specific variety of banana that did get wiped out right. like, by blight or by yeah. some oh. pest or something. So one of the hilarious things, like if you ever had banana candy, like runts or something, and it uh -huh. tastes nothing like a banana, like yeah. like at all. But sort it of like- It tastes like sweet sugar. But, but the, well, not just that though, but <laughs> supposedly the flavor profile it's based on is a banana we don't eat anymore. So well, it's how would they create a flavor profile? No, because that? they, because well, they, they, they got created. We were eating the other. Right. And we're talking about like the 1910s or 20s. Yeah. And oh, they would have started sort of gotten back from that period. So sometimes when you get that banana flavor, that's what the flavor profile is based on. So it's like literally the closest you can get to like, uh, I wonder if they've been able to recreate it. I'm so interested. I know that they're looking into other types, because obviously there's multiple types of bananas in the world. Which right. is the one that, the American the, the banana, I guess, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. is yeah. the one that's, you know, sort of just being propagated by clones, <laughs> which yeah. is incredible. The other great thing about banana, obviously the name, Banana, yes. banana. Um, and the and name how it's banana mm -hmm. um, in virtually every language, um, they just couldn't improve it. And it's banana in it's almost banana. every language. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's only a hand, I looked at like a list of like a hundred ways a banana is translated. That's very and, funny. Um, the short answer is. Why translate it? Banana. Banana. We know what yeah. that is. Everybody knows what a yeah. banana is. Yeah. Yeah. So that is that is really interesting. I was a little bits of food, uh, food knowledge. I'm going to give a shout out to a couple more uh, things. Like if you're interested in getting more into food history or just, um, I will say, Ugly Delicious, which is a really interesting series off of Netflix with David Chang, who's a prominent chef, owns uh, owns and started the Momofuku Noodle Bar, which is a pretty famous one. And, and um, New York and other places has a really great show where they delve into like the history and like the culture behind and they'll, they'll they'll pick like say noodles and that episode isn't just about say Korea or China but it's also about Italy mm -hmm. and it's about you know all these different so it goes across or like pizza and it goes into it, it goes into Italy but it also is like American style pizza or like the, and the, sort of all the history of it and the different areas where it sort of is now the different styles pizzas like barbecue or whatever like mm -hmm. like there's almost like rules to the area it comes from like mm -hmm. what style it has to be in so it's a really interesting um it's a really interesting show for that i will say and then there's also a great youtube series called worth it where they just go and try a specific type of food from three different restaurants um which is a really great sort of beginning uh beginning thing where it, it's a wonderful show to watch because it's too it's too like i think it's from buzzfeed so it's like Two younger people mm -hmm. who like start out just loving food, but not having a vocabulary or or really um, uh, a, lot, a lot of knowledge about it. To towards they did multiple seasons of it, becoming so much more nuanced and understanding mm -hmm. more about food specifically and a perspective to it. So it's mm -hmm. actually really interesting for that point as well. I think it's really interesting how you're very into oh. the global history of food. I am, and I'm more of the pop culture American uh -huh. history I'll, of food. I'll take both. That, that <laughs> kind of deals with not only the uh, 
advent of, of food safety as well as as convenience, uh -huh. but also touches on how things became popular through promotional aspects and how uh -huh. they uh, how they kind of created the con uh, the concept of ads that we have nowadays. You yeah, know, it, it it kind of starts originating with food. Right. Yeah, I feel and like this could lean directly so, into like yeah. a history of marketing. Like why yeah. why, are, why are children's cereal commercials the way they are? Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, and, and there are lots of things that go along with that. We need to start wrapping things. Oh, up. Okay. So, of course. So, we so, could talk. So mm -hmm. Sadly, we, but, we, we um, could talk about it forever, but we can't. Yeah, we mm -hmm. talked about breakfast food, cereals as a way to that kids could kind of feed themselves a mm -hmm. lot of after school and dinner mm -hmm. foods uh frozen meals like uh, bag, bag bites or something well and, and uh, even starting with uh bird's eye meals uh, mm -hmm. on tv tv dinners mm -hmm. yes um, yeah oh there's a whole segment of that on the my my okay. show that i All right. told you we'll about. have to check yeah. back in and on then, that then, <laughs> and then what counts and as cooking and, uh, and yeah, I was going to say we would have and, to at some cooking. point, cooking we could, but we probably will never touch into what meal kits are today. And, right. uh, uh, you know, yeah. the or like the history of, of like the Pillsbury Bake Off and how that literally right. has changed right. how we right. cook, uh, like, you know, what recipes are in the back of our, and, our and green bean food competitions <laughs> in general. But we are not going to touch on any of those subjects today. We'll leave that for you guys. That will be up to you guys to go and research and enjoy that process of learning, uh, like just like we have Basically well. why we eat the foods we eat. Yes. Uh, thank you for listening to Shelf Check. Music for the podcast is Wonderful Adventures by Julian Bonarb under license from First Calm Music, Inc. Production and editing by Stephen McQuay. And thanks to Arlington Public Library system and staff. And special thanks to brilliant food writers that help us understand the things that we're shoveling into our mouths all the time. And uh, in particular, I'm thinking of Michael Pullen. Uh, in, in defense of food, has this brilliant summation of what he thinks people ought to eat. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Very concise. I think I would add to that, um, mix in a little bit of bacon and maybe some nougat from time to time. Of <laughs> cereal for dessert. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, appreciate people that have given this a lot of thought. All right. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>